beautiful language, very rich in its imagery. And so we're going to explore this a little bit and see what we can bring out uh, that has happened in this passage. So we see in, in verse 1, um, could we just put the text up there, Jenny? Thanks. We see in verse 1 that the people left the wilderness of sin. Uh, don't read too much into this. Sin is just the name. It's not representative of anything. And they camped at Rephidim, where there was no water. Now, remember, God was leading the Israelites, and God knows everything. He's omniscient. So he knew that there would be no water there, and he led them there. He had a purpose in mind. In verse 2, we see that Israel quarreled with Moses. Now, the word quarreled is translated in the um, ESV and the NASB uh, to the word quarreled, and probably more accurately in the New King James Version to contended. The, the Hebrew word is, is rib, which literally means to bring a charge against or to bring a lawsuit against. This is significant because Moses is acting as God's emissary on his, on his behalf. So think of him kind of like the, the, the covenant lawyer, the lawyer of God's covenant, the representative. That's why we see that Moses equates quarreling with him to testing the Lord. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? To give you an idea of the seriousness of this charge, they are bringing a suit of divorce against God. They have accused him of adultery violating covenant. In verse 3, we see this demand for water includes grumbling. This is the second of three times, not the first, not the last, in which Israel had grumbled about water, and they'd also grumbled about many other things. They'd forgotten God's promise on two levels. One, that he would deliver them out of Egypt, and two, the daily provision that was implied by that promise, that he would deliver them to the promised land. In verse 4, Moses cries to the Lord. And the sense in which the word cries here is, is not like, um, uh, it's, it's actually desperation at the sense of his impending death. Uh, when he says the Israelites are almost ready to stone him, he doesn't mean that in the way that we say, oh, that guy's about to kill me. He means literally they are about to, in time, stone him if God does not intervene. And death by stoning is the penalty required in Leviticus for adultery. Uh, so we begin to see the picture unfolding here. Uh, when th This case is one of having violated fidelity. This would be seen as justice by the people enacted upon Moses on behalf of God as, as his representative, for failing to ensure they were provided with this water. And this is equivalent to the Israelites planning to judge God. Moving to verse 5, we see an extraordinary scene unfold, a desert courtroom. God says that Moses is to pass on before the people, meaning that they were, they were to see that God had sent Moses to respond to their accusations. But this would not be in the immediate area in which they were. So Moses was to bring some of the elders with, and this satisfied the requirements in Deuteronomy, that the elders were to be present for public court cases as witnesses for fairness on behalf of Israel. So you can see how all of these things are um, legally satisfying the biblical requirements. Uh, Moses was uh, also to take along his staff. Uh, the term staff is used in Scripture to portray varying ideas. It can be authority, shepherding, comfort, and judgment, amongst others. In our context, it's clearly implied to mean judgment, 
given the legal verdict that is being pronounced. And Exodus 7.20 is given as an example there, uh, where it says that uh, where Moses struck the Nile, do you remember, and turned it to blood in judgment against Egypt because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. So clearly, they, they would have begun to worry because they would have understand, understood that judgment was coming. And as this courtroom uh, party left them to go to the Mount of Horeb, uh, they would likely have been understanding that God was about to levy judgment on them, and they would have been fearing for their lives. But then God does an interesting thing. In verse 6, he says that he will stand before Moses there on the rock. Two very important things to note here. The first is that he says he will stand before Moses. In a courtroom setting in in, uh, Hebrew law, the defendant had to stand before the judge. It's the same word, before. So God identifies himself as the defendant of the accusation. Standing before a judgment. And it's also interesting to note that this is the only time in the Old Testament where God stands before man. And secondly, God identifies himself with the rock. This fits in with much of the scriptural reference to God as the rock. Again, there are various meanings here in scripture. From being a sure foundation, to being completely true, to being a father to his people, and to being a hiding place. But the meaning in view here is that of Psalm 95, which calls God the rock of our salvation, the one who brings life from death. So God commands Moses to strike the rock, and then water pours out of it so that the people could drink. A very surprising twist has happened. Israel has rightly asserted that treason occurred, and that the appropriate penalty was death. What they had got wrong is that they were the ones who had committed the treason. This false accusation was grave sin. But shockingly, the judgment of God was levied on himself, having identified with the rock. He took the blow of judgment, and the Israelites were spared. He had absorbed the death penalty that was due to Israel by substituting himself. And finally, we see in verse 7 what we mentioned earlier that this place uh, of quarrel was named Masa and Meribah. Merib, rib was the Hebrew word for quarrel, uh, because they had quarreled and tested the Lord. Now, as we move into the application of this text, what we need to be very careful of here is solely making a moral abstraction from the situation. For example, we might say, don't grumble with God. You must trust in his provision. Uh, This is, of course, true and valid, and actually Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 uh, petitions us in light of this text not to repeat Israel's mistakes. So that's very valid. But if we stop there at making a moral abstraction, and this is true of any part of the Bible, we miss the main point of the text. So what is the main point of the text? Well, I mentioned earlier that it points to something far greater to come, that it is a foreshadowing, and that it is. That far greater something is the salvation brought to us in Christ Jesus. What happened here at Horeb is a temporary foreshadow of the perfect and eternal act that happened on the hill of Golgotha outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. So... In looking at this text overall, 
I think that it displays three key truths about the gospel. One, sin exists. Two, God is a holy God who must levy a judgment on sin. And three, God graciously provides a salvation. We're going to look at each of these in turn and and see um, that this text, like the scriptures as a whole, are not primarily about the activity of man, but about the activity of God. They do not testify to human moral successes. In fact, they testify to human moral failures. And instead, they testify to perfect divine accomplishment. So part one, there was sin in our text. Sin exists. In our text, we've seen that uh, God had a purpose in leading the people to Rephidim, where there was no water. He was testing their hearts. Did God commit sin by testing their hearts? By no means. In Jeremiah 17.10, we read that God searches the heart and examines the mind. He has every right to test and weigh the hearts of his people. But God goes so much further than this. He, he brings us tests so that the state of our hearts is, is revealed to us, which is a, a mercy for believers and for unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, seeing the state of your heart means that you can, you can see that your ways cause offense to God and you can repent and believe and receive eternal life. If you're a believer, you may say that you trust God, but in your trials, the quality of your faith is, is revealed. And this is a gift in itself, because if we endure, we can take courage that we have confidence and that our hope is in the Lord. And if we fail, we can still have hope because God has provided Christ for us to lean on. That when we fail, he has victory. The quality of your faith is tested in the retrenchment. It's tested in being denied your promotion. It's tested in your bullying. It's tested in your failed family relationships. It's tested in your cancer. And it's tested in the death of loved ones. But we can be comforted because God is faithful. And in our text, we've seen that Israel sinned in its treason against God, having grumbled and brought this suit of divorce against him. And it affirms what we're told in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the state of mankind, having fallen from grace in Adam's disobedience and being under the curse from that day, dead in our sins and trespasses. We're all disobedient and at enmity with God, in desperate need of a saviour. And we're without excuse because Romans 1 tells us that God's visibility is not the problem. Our unbelief is. We reject him not because his word contradicts itself or that he contradicts himself, but that his word and his person contradict us as sinners. We wish to sit in the judgment seat over our own lives and pronounce our wickedness as righteousness. We want to declare ourselves good in our own sight. This demonstrates the pervasiveness of sin that is spread to every person in this room. 
Secondly, there was a judgment. God is holy and he must punish sin. So we've seen that sin is a reality. And the death blow of the staff of judgment was levied. This is actually what the gospel tells us will happen. Romans 1.23 says that the wages of sin is death. God is infinitely holy. And so the smallest sin against him is an infinite offense and requires an infinite punishment, which is why death for eternity in hell, in conscious eternal torment, is not even great enough to remedy what has been done in the offense to God's holiness. Exodus 34, 6-7 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God, mercy and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, for God to be a righteous judge, he must administer justice. What would you say if a judge in this area had a rapist and a murderer standing before them, and he said, you can go. You can walk right out. You would call him a wicked and corrupt judge, one who has abandoned the requirements of the law, a terrible person who should be thrown down from his position of power. So how could then the same not be true for a holy God and a holy law? See, the great satanic lie in this world is that there will not be a future catastrophic judgment. On the basis of this lie, we can live as we please. We can give no thought to the anger of a holy God against sin. We can have our truth and others can have theirs. We can live in sexual immorality, in drunkenness. We can live in slander and idolatry without the fear of divine justice against wickedness. But this lie comes straight from the pit of hell and by it many multitudes will perish eternally. In Revelation 6 we read a frightening thing. When the day of judgment comes, it says that the wicked will run into the caves and they will cry out to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And then all of the wicked will be thrown into hell and a great gulf will be fixed. And there will be eternal weeping and wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Do you believe this? It's true. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for men to die once and then comes the judgment. This is the defeat, the absolute defeat of paganism, pantheism, Hinduism and all religions of reincarnation. All men will be judged by the living God, no exceptions. This is why the God of the Bible is either loved or hated. No one seems particularly fussed about the impersonal God of Islam or the many thousands of Hindu gods. They are many false mute idols, and so they do not pose a legitimate threat to anybody. It is only the God of the Bible, the true God, whose holiness and justice are rightly perceived to be a threat. And we know this in our hearts, and Romans 1 tells us that we, in our wickedness and our evil, we suppress it and we deny it. But we know we are without excuse. God will not have mercy on the unrepentant sinner, only on his repented people, the people who have repented of their sin and who have trusted in him. 
So for us, at any point in time, there is only one relevant question. Are you right with God? Right now, are you right with God? You see, we have the good news of the gospel. Jesus came, and he came to slay the sin that was in men. But when he returns, he will come to slay the men who are in sin. Be ready. Be right with God. This warning that comes to us today from this passage is, Do not leave here today in your life of sin, for you do not know the hour of Christ's return. It may be in one minute. But what we will deal with next is the good news that you can know that God has made a way to deal with your sins so that you can be right with God, so that you will not be judged with the wicked and that you will enter eternal communion with God. And as that song Cornerstone says, that at his return, you will stand in the very righteousness of Christ. Are you ready for this good news? Yes. And so... The third thing that we see in our text is that there was grace. God graciously provides a salvation. See, justice had to be done as God is holy, but he's also faithful to his covenant and he is full of mercy. We saw this in Exodus 34, 6-7, which spoke of his mercy, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness. In our text, we saw that God absorbed Israel's blow of judgment by identifying with the rock which was struck. A salvation was graciously provided by God, which means that he both justly punished Israel's sin and kept his covenant with them to preserve them. To whom is this salvation available? Well, in the Old Testament, it was available to God's chosen people. But Titus 2.11 gives us the good news that now in Christ, it is available to all who repent and believe, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. That means everybody, the Greek. This is the good news of the salvation, of the gospel, that salvation is available to you and me, that Christ bore our sin on his shoulders and that he was struck with the staff of God's wrath. This is the promised picture of Isaiah 53 that says that uh, he would be crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. The rock. Crushed for our iniquities. And that by his stripes we would be healed. In John 19, 31-34, the foreshadow of our text is displayed in, in true glory where, where Christ is crucified and after he died, the soldiers pierced his side and what poured out? The water and the blood. This water symbolizes life and this blood, atoning sacrifice. But not only was he struck unto death by the staff of God's wrath, but he was raised in power after three days. And then he ascended. And he ever lives to intercede for you. And so our confidence is in Christ who is the greater Moses, as Hebrews tells us, who this very day acts as covenant lawyer, interposing his precious blood. 
So for a moment, let us just consider the salvation that's offered to us in the gospel. There are only two religions. The religion of human accomplishment and the religion of divine accomplishment. The cruel false religion of human accomplishment is where our supposed righteousness comes from our own works and deeds. This is Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, the New Age, paganism, Roman Catholicism, mysticism, Buddhism, and even atheism, which puts man on the judgment seat of God. Then there is the one true religion, the religion of divine accomplishment, which is the Christian gospel, which affirms that we cannot be righteous before God by our own deeds. Instead, God imputes the holiness of his son to you. He lived a perfect life, On your behalf. And through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, we receive this free gift of permanent, uh, this permanent gift, this free gift with no revocation. It is never taken away. It is accomplished entirely and perfectly by God. It is not something to be earned or to be bargained for, but it is the gracious gift of a loving God available to all who repent and believe. False religion would have you beat your sin into righteousness with the hammer of law-keeping. But Christianity proclaims that the sin of those who repent was crucified in Christ and that the righteousness of Christ was substituted for their own. And this free offer of mercy is affirmed in Isaiah 55, which says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, you have no righteousness, you who are bankrupt, come, buy and eat. Buy with what? Without money and without cost. It's without cost to you because it costs Jesus his life. Because of the price he pays, you may freely have eternal life. So I have something for you to think seriously and urgently about. Even if you were part of God's chosen nation and had seen him miraculously intervene, as they had seen the Red Sea parted and manna falling from heaven to provide for them day by day, you would be there with them and you would say, is God really among us? Perhaps you might say to me today that if God heals my cancer or if God gives me a job, I would believe in him. Do you not see the wickedness? The accusation and the manipulation. Would you put God before the jury of your own wisdom? But God has revealed his love to us in Christ. So it's not God's failing, but the hardness of a heart. And he breaks through the hardness with this message of the gospel. And he sheds his Light brought in our hearts. You need a sinless Savior to die in your place, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. I think Tim Keller expresses this very well in a sentence. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine, but you can be loved more by God than you ever dared dream. Look, if you want something out of this world, 
something truly out of this world. It's a life of holiness. It's, a, it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the crown of glory that only he can give. It's the free gift of righteousness. It's the free gift of righteousness which comes through faith. It's confidence in God. It's freedom from the bondage of sin. It's true hope that carries us through suffering. It's real joy that, signs, that, that, that shines in the, sign, in the times of our, our sorrows. What truly comes from out of this world is the salvation that comes from God in Christ Jesus alone. There is nothing else like it. There is nothing else which can get you into heaven. There is nothing else which is unfailing, and there is nothing else which is acceptable to God. So what is your confidence, O dust of the earth? In the face of this blazing glory, this ineffable radiance, this matchless perfection, this unspeakable power, this spotless holiness, and this priceless sacrifice, this free gift, and this unexplained richness of mercy, is your confidence in your flesh which will fail you? If it is in your money, tomorrow you may be bankrupt. If it is in your health, tomorrow you may be diagnosed. If it is in your family, tomorrow they may let you down. And if it is in your own righteousness, Lord help you, for on the day of judgment you will not stand. But if you have seen something today of God and His great salvation, then put your confidence in Him. In light of all we have considered, I commend Christ to you. And if you do not yet know him, or if you thought you know him and you realize that you do not, I beg of you, be reconciled to God. Call upon Christ as the rock of your salvation and you shall be saved. We are going to sing now one of my very favorite hymns. So if I could ask the worship team to come forward. And I pray that as we sing this, you will see in each line, we have covered each line of the song that, that came in this text today. Give glory to God. Worship Him. Repent of your sin. Believe and be saved.